for us to hear God's word spoken over us as we just have. I hope that we never cease to be amazed by the reality of that truth. We just heard God's word spoken to us. In commission, we love the Bible. We love the Bible because we love Jesus even more, and this book is all about him, about who he is, about what he's done, about how we can know him, about how we can become like him, how we can call others to join us in this great adventure. What a privilege we have to be those that get to read his word and be transformed by it. There is power in this word, and we are greatly privileged to be able to read it together and to learn from it together. I don't know about you, I'm sure many of you here, those of you who are Christians would agree with this. Our great goal and our great ambition is to one day hear Jesus speak these words over us. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. You've done so well. I long to hear Jesus speak those words over me. I long to hear him speak those words over you. And yet the reality is that for many of us here, we spend the majority of our time in environments that are hostile to the Word of God, environments that are hostile towards that great goal that we would have to hear Jesus speak those words over us. The great encouragement that comes to us from this chapter in Daniel is that even in the most hostile, the most barren of environments, we can not only survive as Christians, we can have an expectation of flourishing and thriving and glorifying Him as we pursue His kingdom together. Devotion to the king enthrones him in our hearts. Kingdom people are worshiping people. That's what we're going to be looking at today. It would be remiss of me, however, to begin this morning without thanking Guy for so generously agreeing to allowing me to use his office chair <laughs> for the purposes of this talk today. I think we can all agree it's modest. Um, now, if this throne, if this throne represents the seat of ultimate power and ultimate authority over your life, who gets to sit in it? If this throne represents the seat of ultimate power and authority over this nation and over the nations, who gets to sit in it? Who gets to sit in it when it comes to your future, your salvation, your finances, your time? Who sits in this throne when things are going well? Who sits in this throne when things are not going well? Who sits in this throne when, when you're experiencing failure or you're going through a time of suffering? Whose throne is it? The issue at stake in Daniel chapter 1 is the same issue at stake in this nation today and in the world. It's the same issue at stake in our hearts, and that is, who is the king? 
Who is the king? Who is the great king? Let's start then in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Make no mistake, this is a devastating moment for the Israelites, a shameful and devastating moment. We have to appreciate what is happening here. And I want you to think with me of those faithful Israelite families from one generation to another who would have told the story of Israel's history who would have told the story of the old man in the desert, Abraham, to whom God spoke in his old age, who'd never had a child, and God promised him, you're going to have descendants more numerous than the stars and the sand. How is this possible? I'm faithful to my promise. They would tell the story of, of, of subsequent, the fathers of Isaac, of Jacob, of Moses, as we were hearing how God faithfully led us out of our slavery, out of Egypt, how he demonstrated his power with signs and wonders and a mighty hand, how he provided for us in the wilderness, how he spoke to us, how he raised up Joshua to lead us into the land of promise, how he, through Joshua, overcame Jericho and the wicked nations that were against God and established us in the land of promise. They would have told these stories to their children, to their grandchildren. I'm imagining around a fire with food, celebrating, these faithful families celebrating the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God. They would have spoken about how through the great King David, they were led to give generously to building the temple and how the families gave of their treasures, their gold and their silver and their precious stone. And we gave to this and through King Solomon, we saw this temple built to be this place for the presence of God where he would be worshiped and where he would be celebrated. And they would tell these stories over and over. And I can imagine some of the children going, but dad, mom, didn't Moses say that there was to be no graven image? Didn't, didn't Moses say that there was to be no idols? That we were to worship only the one true God? Why is it that, that our king has got these Asherah poles and these Baals? And why is it that we're no longer singing these songs? Why is it that we're no longer hearing these stories of Moses and the faithfulness of God? What's happened? And I can imagine these faithful Israelite families. We need to pray for our king to repent. Right now, we're not being led by a king who honors God. But our God is the king, and our God has a plan. Trust in his plan. And I, and I can envisage these children looking to their mom and dads, trying to understand what is going on. And then the besieging of Jerusalem happens. Jeremiah had prophesied. He said, turn back to God. Turn back to God or you will be invaded. A great army will come. And indeed that happens as Nebuchadnezzar's armies come into Jerusalem. And I want you to imagine how utterly devastating and shameful a moment this is. We're very individualistic in our day and age. Back then identity was so linked to the people that you belonged to. 
and for the Israelites to see the armies of Babylon coming in and besieging Jerusalem, going into the temple, taking the gold, taking the lampstands, taking out everything that was precious and valuable, all of the treasures. We're going to take this now, and we're going to take it to Babylon. We, we read in 2 Kings, 10,000 were taken at this moment, the best of Israel, the finest treasures taken away. It was a devastating moment to see as the temple was ransacked and gutted before their very eyes. Who is on the throne? Who is on the throne as this is taking place? I want us to read these verses from Psalm 137. This is a remarkable psalm, really. This is, in many ways, this is a lament. Listen to these words. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres or their harps. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, which is songs of joy, saying, sing for us one of the songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we sing the Lord's song here in Babylon? You've got to envisage these young Israelites seeing their very world devastated, and they find themselves here in Babylon, and their captors are taunting them and provoking them. Didn't these vessels used to belong to your God? Weren't they once in your God's house? Look at them now here in Nebuchadnezzar's house. Don't they look good? Don't they look better here? Come on, cheer up. Sing for us a song. Sing for us one of your songs. Aren't you a people that sings? Sing one of your songs. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we sing the Lord's song here? Is our God really on the throne? Is our God really reigning? Is our gold adorns the temple of Nebuchadnezzar? And they are silenced, as it were, by their sense of shame and humiliation and fear now that they're in this foreign land and in this different nation. I wonder, can you relate? Can you identify with them? How's the nation today? How's our nation doing today? When you think of, even in our lifetime, even in our generation, some of the things we've seen, the treasures, as it were, of our house, marriage taken, brought, as it were, to the houses of parliament, redefined. You think of the sanctity and the preciousness of life, every person made in the image of God, woven together in the mother's womb, taken, redefined. And you stand back and you see this happening and, and you ask the question, God, what's going on? How has this taken place? Or a, another question, how's the church doing in our nation today? How's the church doing? Let me tell you of a conversation I had 
with two ministers in Portsmouth. We were looking for a building to use for our evening service, and so I'd arranged to speak to two ministers to see if we can potentially use their church building. And here's how the conversation went with the first minister. He said to me, Tim, just tell me, what is it that you're planning on doing in the building? I said, oh, nothing you know, particularly outlandish. We're going to just worship Jesus and teach the Bible. His response was, interesting. Some of our people might want to come along. It's been a long time since the Bible was taught in this church. Second minister. So Tim, tell me a bit about your church. Well, we're just, we're a Bible teaching church. We love to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he interrupted me and he said, I'm just going to stop you there. What do you mean when you say gospel? I said, well, the, the good news, the, the life, the death, the resurrection of the Son of God to rescue sinners. And he said, so you believe in the resurrection? Yes, I am a, a Christian. I believe in the resurrection. Do you not? And he said to me, I've not believed in the resurrection for years. Those two conversations. We have one minister. He has, as it were, not hung up his harp. He's hung up his Bible. He's gagged his God. And then you have another one, and the other one says, there's no resurrection. If there's no resurrection, there's no king. If there's no resurrection, Jesus is still dead. If there's no resurrection, guys, what are we doing in tents at the moment? Seriously. What are we doing? I had two hours sleep last night. My one-year-old was up crying two in the morning for two hours, waking up the whole campsite. I was just praying, Lord Jesus, I'm so glad you are alive. And you've given us coffee. <laughs> These guys don't believe there's a king on the throne. That is not us, is it? That is not us. That is not our past. That is not our history. We are a people who find our DNA and our sense of identity rooted in the good news of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's our history. Absolutely our present is the gospel, is the life-transforming message of God. That's our present, and by the grace of God, it's our future too. We are those committed to proclaiming the glorious message that we've been given to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. We have to understand we too are an alien community in this world. We too are like exiles. Do you know what? In a room like this, it's not difficult to sing the Lord's song, is it? When you've got this phenomenal band we are lifting our hands, we are celebrating, we are rejoicing, we are enjoying God together. It's not hard to sing the Lord's song here. But you go back to the office, and you go back to university, 
and you suddenly find the values of Babylon, the values of the world has so inculcated this world, this environment that we're living in, to speak up for Jesus, very hard. Come on, Christians, sing us the Lord's song. Tell us, what do you think about marriage? What do you think about, do you really believe that sex is only for marriage between a man and a woman? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that life is sacred from the very first moments of conception right to the end? Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that Jesus is the only way to God? And you're in that environment and you should feel the pressure of that moment. There should be a sense of conflict. If you're just happily able to exist in your place of work or study without feeling that tension, it's likely that you've agreed it's Nebuchadnezzar who sits on this throne. But if you've established it's Christ who's my king, this is his throne, then you're going to feel the pressure and the challenge. And then you will be tempted. Have we got this right? Have we got this right? And you will be tempted to ask those questions. Daniel gives us in chapter 1, it's his testimony. He's given this to us that we might know how it was he found himself in Babylon. Not only did he survive through it, he saw thousands of lives transformed. He even sees King Nebuchadnezzar bow the knee to his God. How? He tells us, he shows us. We need to see this in verse 2. This is his kingdom discernment. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Those three words highlighted there. I put to you, there are no three words more significant in the whole book of Daniel than those three words, the Lord gave. That is Daniel's statement of faith in the sovereignty of his God over the predicament that he found himself in in that moment. Did Daniel want to be in Babylon? Did he want to be away from home? Of course not. Daniel is one of those that were given over. And he's going, do you know what? I find myself here, and I know that my God is king. I know that my God sits on the throne. I know that my God is sovereign. I know that my God is at work. And if he is seated on that throne, then I'm here for a reason. There's a purpose for me being here. But my God doesn't do things by chance. This isn't fluke. I find myself here because I am sent, given by the king. I find myself here with purpose, on a mission. He's placed me here for a reason. To advance his kingdom, his reign, the kingdom of God, the rule of the king through the king's people in this place. You are where you are because your king has a plan and a purpose for you. He determines our destiny. He places us where he wills. And do you know what? As you establish he's the king, even in moments where you find yourself in Babylon, do you know what it does? It humbles you. It humbles you. In commission, we've got a big God theology. We do. We have a big God. 
we celebrate a big God, an all-powerful, sovereign, big God. But let me tell you this, our theology always needs to be bigger. No matter how big we may have established our God to be, he needs to be bigger. John the Baptist said this, I must decrease, he must increase. And all of us are on this journey to get to this point of revelation, which is this universe doesn't revolve around me. This is his creation, this is his world. He is the king, I am his ambassador. Daniel is his ambassador sent into this land. So Daniel's kingdom decision, verse eight, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. He makes a decision, a courageous, a bold decision. He has at this point come under uh, incredible pressure. He's found himself in this University of Babylon, if you like, and, and the powers of darkness are working to dethrone the king from his heart and to de- dethrone the, the king from their lives. That's the agenda. That's the same agenda at work in this world today. We have to acknowledge it. The powers of darkness are at work to dethrone Christ from our hearts. And the tactics are consistent. Indoctrination and enticement. We see this in the text. They have to learn the culture, the values, the ways of the Babylonian society. And it's not even subtle. Their names get changed we find a complete change of their names. Daniel, God is my judge. Hananiah, Yahweh is gracious. Mishael, who is what God is. Azariah, Yahweh has helped. And they don't dispute this moment. They don't kick off or kick up a fuss at this point. Why is that? Because identity, to have any value, has to go so much deeper than what you're called. These men find themselves, these young men find themselves in this environment and they know who their God is. And do you know what? As I was in this text, do you know who I was thinking of? I was thinking of the unsung heroes of Daniel chapter one. I was thinking of Daniel's mum and dad. I was thinking of Daniel's kids workers. I was thinking of Daniel's youth workers. I was asking the question, who was it that taught Daniel these truths? Where does his theology come from? Where was his his faith cultivated? And I got thinking about what was taking place in these other tents right this very moment. And I put to you that we're kidding ourselves if we think this is the main event. If we're to have a future as a family of churches, we've got to be absolutely passionate about what's taking place in the tents around us. And we need to love our kids and we need to teach them the, the ways of God. And we need to pray for our friends who are teaching them so well. I want to give a big shout out to the guys in the other tent right now. We honor them. We honor them. What a crucial job they have. We must resist the indoctrination of Babylon. We must be mindful of it. Let me put this to you. If you are feeling pressure to change what you believe, if you're going into your church and you're speaking to your pastors and you're saying, look, I just, I don't know that we've got this right, and and your pressure, your sense of pressure to change is coming from the society, 
be very wary of that. What is what everyone else believes and everyone else is, are they not right? However, if you are reading this book and you're hearing your king speak to you and you're going, do you know what? I'm seeing things here and I just feel we need to line up with the word of God. Be courageous. If you go through church history, every great renewal, every great revival has come about as men and women have gone, do you know what? We need to line up with the words of our God. We have hung up our Bibles. We have gagged our God. It's about time we started to listen to him. We need to be those that are committed to that and wary of that indoctrination. Enticement. Why does Daniel make this decision? What is this resolve about, not to defile himself? Well, some have said, well, it's the food laws. Maybe that's what's going on here. Daniel didn't want to eat anything that was unclean. That's a question which has been asked and put out. But then why would he refuse the wine? There's no law which says you can't drink wine. Or maybe the, maybe the food sacrificed to idols, and, and therefore he doesn't want to eat that. Well, how is he to know that the food he does request wasn't sacrificed to idols as well? Let me put to you this. The reason Daniel takes this decision is that he saw that being in an environment around the king's table was the place of greatest vulnerability for himself and his heart. As he was invited to, 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 if you like, enjoy the good life of Babylon, the rich food, the great wine, around the table with the king. That was the place of greatest vulnerability. Guys, you know it. My happy place is around the table. That's my happy place. I love eating with my family. Around the table is where I try out all my best jokes on the kids, right? We are having, that's what happens. We're eating our food. We're drinking, I love a good roast dinner. I'm already planning the Christmas meal. I am, I genuinely am, I can't wait. Around our table with our kids, we are singing songs, we are reading scripture, we are praying. It's a key environment to be fed in more ways than one. And Daniel saw, do you know what? To go into the very heart of the king's dining room where he can shape and mold and speak. My heart, I just feel that would be unwise to do. I need to keep my king on the throne of my heart. I believe that's what Daniel is doing there. He's resolving, and the word we have translated as defilement, actually a better word would be estrangement. I don't want to be estranged. I don't want to, I don't want to find myself being distant from my king. This is a moment of great faith. James says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. There's a sense in which Daniel saw, I'm, I'm at risk of, of just being absorbed right now, and I need to take a radical decision. I think of Joseph, who ran from Potiphar. You know, he made that decision, I'm not even going anywhere near Potiphar's wife's chambers. I'm going to keep my distance. That's where the temptation is going to be. This is a similar decision that Daniel is making. It's an incredible decision. All the other Israelites were going. And I can imagine, hey, Daniel, what's the big deal? Hey, you're kicking up a fuss about the king's food. It's good. What's the problem? There's nothing wrong with it. 
What's the problem with eating the king's rich food and drinking his wine? And it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. The question you and I sh shouldn't be asking is, how much can we get away with consuming in this world? The question is, how do we glorify our king in this world? That's the question which Daniel is asking, and that's it, the question he puts. He has this moment of great faith, I would say an encounter with the power and presence of God. I love how Calvin puts it. Calvin says, faith is not some distant view, but a warm embrace of Christ. I like to think of it as an almighty bear hug from the Almighty. A sense of Daniel in the cold darkness of Babylon having an almighty bear hug from his God. Feeling, I am loved and precious. How good it is to know him. I'm not going to risk that for anything. That's my greatest thrill and pleasure and joy in life. What does it mean for you to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? A few months ago, I had a call from couple in our church, young couple in their 20s, and they said, Tim, can we just have you over, just need some advice? I knew it wasn't going to be DIY related. So I turn up, and they say, we've, we've got some money, we've been given some money, and we actually really feel that we should, should give it away. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. And these, these guys, they have secondhand furniture in the house, they do not live a lavish lifestyle, they've got money they've come into. And so my next question was, well, how much are we talking? About 50,000 pounds. We want to give it away. We've got faith to give it away. That doesn't happen in Babylon. No, that does not happen. What does that point to? It points to another king. It points to a greater treasure. It points to one who is more glorious and more wonderful. It says that there is a banquet to anticipate, more lavish and more decadent than anything Nebuchadnezzar could offer. This is how we thrive in Babylon, my friends. As we are wary of the indoctrination, as we are wary of the enticement, but more than that, as we make big, bold, brave decisions to keep Christ as the king in our hearts. One commentator said, this decision Daniel makes is a decision fraught with destiny. I love that, a decision fraught with destiny. If it wasn't for this moment, there would be no lion's den. There would be no fiery furnace. Some of you would have a different first name. If it wasn't for this moment, Daniel, this decision Daniel makes, Christ is my king. He's my first priority. Above all else, I'm a worshiper. Above all else, I'm a worshiper. He doesn't make it difficult for us. As we long to see thousands of lives transformed, how's it going to happen? We can't just look to Guy Miller. We can't just expect our leaders to come up with all the great plans. Hey, we, the way we see transformation is as you and I, sent by the king into Babylon, enthrone him in our hearts through our devotion to him. Devoted to him first and foremost. 
worshippers first and foremost. And for some of you, there's going to be stuff that you need to deal with in your hearts this weekend. Some of you, you're going to have to make courageous, bold decisions. Some of you know you're going to have to die to some things. The question is, are you ready to listen to your king speak to you? Why don't we stand and I'm going to lead us into prayer. Father, we thank you that you have put faith in our hearts to see Jesus, our resurrected, ascended King. We thank you that the seat of ultimate power and authority is yours. We thank you that your throne is a throne of grace, a place of help for us in time of need. We thank you that you care too much for us to allow our hearts to become estranged from you. And I pray that in this world that you've sent us into, that does not fear you, that does not love you, that certainly doesn't care about your word, we commit to being a radically different people. We say we are a people of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, and we're a people committed to glorifying his name, recognizing that transformed lives are ultimately lives of abundance in Jesus. Wow, that is what you're calling us to, abundant life. So Lord, I pray over these few days, let us listen, speak to us, and be glorified through us. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.